Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're talking about artificial intelligence and the challenge and maybe even the risks it poses to democracy and the way our countries are governed, but also the hope that it can bring. This week, the United Nations Security Council met for the first time to discuss the issue of AI with UN officials and diplomats alike urging the world to take the emergence of this new technology seriously, as if the world hasn't been reading about exactly that point for months. And of course, in the UK, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is planning a summit in November, we believe, on just these points. So I've got a terrific panel here to talk about this enormous subject. Here in the studio, we've got Dr. Talita Diaz, a senior research fellow with our international law program. Welcome. Thanks, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. And we have as well Alex Krasodomsky, a senior research associate with our Digital Society Initiative, who talks about an awful lot of our work on this. Alex, great to have you here. Hey, Bronwyn. Down the line, we've got Dr. Millie Zimata, until very recently with the Open Data Institute. Welcome, Millie. Thank you, Bronwyn. Great to be here. Great to have you. And finally, we've got writer and journalist Carl Miller. Welcome to Chatham House, Carl. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Well, we are going to dive into all all these sober questions of governance and the threats and so on. But I wanted to start by asking you all about the most positive or most exciting thing that for you this technology could bring. Alex, can I start with you? Sure. Well, I think it's very often two sides of the same coin. There is a quote I really like from a a biologist, actually, a chap called um, Ed Wilson. Uh, And he he says, look, the problem with humanity is we have Paleolithic, we have Stone Age emotions, we have medieval institutions and godlike technology. And I really like that as a sort of framing to understand both the sort of the, the, the possibilities of AI and also perhaps some of the challenges it will bring. Technology and democracy, especially over the last 10, 15, 20 years, have had a bit of a difficult relationship. But it's now perhaps time to see, well, how can technologies like AI go to improve, change and amplify the way that we are able to participate democratically? Are, they, are we able to use these kinds of technologies to go beyond the medieval institutions and sort of start using this godlike power that we sort of see with AI and use that to improve the way we do governance, improve the way we do democracy. Okay, well, thanks for that first thought. I'm not going to divert the whole podcast by asking what you mean by godlike, because that will take us in another direction. But uh, Millie, what for you is the most positive? Oh, Bronwyn, I'd say the most positive thing about the kind of the recent AI hype and doom is at least it's got people paying attention to it um, and trying to understand the technology. And that's really important for transparency and accountability. And I think for me, the most positive outcome from AI, I think would be actually if it helps us value the aspects of human intelligence that can't be replicated by a machine. Intelligence is more than just analysis. It's also emotions. It's social relations. It's all sorts of things. And I think helping us value the parts of ourselves, the aspects of ourselves that can't be digitized and can't be replicated by technology, I think that'd be a great outcome. Really interesting angle. Thank you. Carl? Well, um, I think, to put it bluntly, that it might help us save democracy and knit together some of the gaping social wounds and divisions which we've experienced over the last few decades. Um, Exactly how? People are going to have to listen a bit longer to find out, I guess. But, yes, they but yes. yes, they are. Yes, they are. Thank you for that teaser right at, right at the beginning, Talita. 
Uh, so for me, I think irrespective of the risks and opportunities, I think what is interesting about AI is that it's bringing states and other stakeholders together to discuss this. And it is helping uh, these different stakeholders to think about, to be creative about how the law and governance models apply to these new technologies. Okay, well, lots of warm-up there. For for me, I'm going to go in a more practical direction, but the people I run into who are super excited about all this uh, are often in medicine, and just the people even quite often at the end of their career saying, I never expected, whether it's diagnostics or, or new drugs, I never expected this to be in my lifetime, let alone in my professional career. And suddenly these things we have been dreaming and working about for years are coming through in weeks or months. And uh, the sheer level of excitement there um, is something I really treasure, particularly when you um, begin to focus on the many threats and everything, as we're now about to do. So, Millie, perhaps you could just start us off in a more practical way. When we talk about artificial intelligence, um, what are we talking about? Um, it's, It's a great question, and I don't think there's consensus on that. I think the term artificial intelligence AI, I think it's contested. Um, And maybe one good thing that will come out of this kind of, you know, uh, a lot more visibility that it has is it will start to work towards a shared definition. So as as I said, you know, I think um, AI can be understood as an attempt to recreate aspects of human intelligence in machine form. But of course, human intelligence, it's biological, it's social, it's contextual. You know, think about, you know, English humour, we're kind of, it can be ambiguous whether a statement is sarcasm or flirting or literal, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do with language, which isn't isn't literal and isn't direct. And humans, we just take that for granted. But it's really difficult to program a machine to do that precisely because human intelligence is so rich and multidimensional. So instead of trying to program a machine to replicate it, what we do instead is we we give the machine a whole bunch of data and invite it to spot the patterns. So it's almost replicating or trying to replicate an aspect of human intelligence from the outside in rather than from the inside out, if you see what I mean. Um, And then that can run a spectrum from what we call supervised learning, where you give it really quite tight parameters and tell it what you want it to do or what you want it to learn, to unsupervised learning, where you just give it the data and see what patterns it spots. And then um, the the kind of, you know, the the Skynet Terminator version that we sometimes, you know, hear about, that would be a form of artificial general intelligence where the machine essentially decides what to learn itself. Um, We're not there yet. Thank you for that very, very clear start. I do indeed see exactly what you mean. So, Carl, how worried should we be? Well, um, firstly, we are freaking out, aren't we, as a society at the moment? I mean, I I don't think anyone can allege that we're not taking this seriously. I can't remember a time like this where all the summits and the and the the task forces and the you know groups that 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 are forming and spring up to deal with this the best description of of ai i've been given is that it's like sophisticated autocomplete so it's very very good at basically completing whatever it's being asked to do whether that's creating a video or an image or or text and that means in the hands of human beings it can be quite damaging and we are contemplating it's kind of absolutely kind of um, very profound impacts on quite a lot of different parts of human economic and creative and cultural life. But I think the, the, the one concern that I hear people often having, which we probably can allay a bit, is the idea that there is a kind of sentience lurking somewhere in these algorithms or models. Like, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Just because it can mimic and emulate human activity doesn't mean it is a human or even approaching a human. So this idea that there, are, there is a, um, a, a possibly malicious intelligence 
somewhere that's about to spring out. Well, that's not the case at all. Again, you put it very well. I like that autocomplete um, analogy. Alex, you began to take us in, in the intro into questions about democracy and whether this was a threat, and that's something you write a lot about. What, what for you, are the concerns? To sort of follow on from, from what Carl was saying, if you imagine that you have this sort of incredibly powerful autocomplete, you can now start up sort of applying that to some of the, the, the current challenges with our digital world that do affect our democracy, most obviously around information. I think over the last decade, we've seen uh, a lot of discussion about the challenges of democracy when faced with an information space, a news cycle and so on. And social media is another example that has been has been challenging, I think. Now, artificial intelligence can potentially expand that significantly further, reduce the amount of effort required to pollute an information space, and fundamentally challenge perhaps some of the notions that we have around editorial control, around what is put out there into the world as part of a sort of media agenda or as part of a, a of, of the kind of information that people consume on a daily basis. I think all of the sort of our pre-existing notions about the limits of you know, what an organisation can do or what an individual can do in terms of changing the debate, changing the information space in which a society operates, they kind of have to go out the window when AI sort of steps in to, to, to power up those kinds of efforts. Because of the sheer volume of it, the ease uh, and the quality of replication that you actually won't be able to tell if this is a an avatar or a person, these things will look like real information. Right. I think that's right. We had a one of our speakers recently at a Chatham House event talked about how in the course of half an hour, she had turned all of her blog posts into a podcast series, not like not unlike this one, in half an hour. Like that's astonishing. That's the kind of the sort of the functionality that would, would have been totally impossible. In um, her own voice. In her own voice. That's right. Yes. yes. Which is an absolutely astonishing mm. example. Um, as you said, it's the, the, the volume and the quality of this completely new information that will be flooding us and giving us all kinds of challenges about how we reach for any sense of authenticity. Um, we might come back to that. Talita, you work a lot on the, the governance of this, which is a huge and emerging field. What is your thought? So um, for me, uh, my first thought is that um, AI is, is unique, but it also is similar to other digital technologies in many ways. And so from a perspective of international law and governance, my first uh, idea or thinking around this is that uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. International law already applies to AI as it applies to other digital technologies like cyberspace, information communications technologies, the internet. So this is the starting point. The second thing that comes to mind uh, when I think about AI is that there's a lot of debate about governance models and mechanisms and institutions. And people are divided about that. Some people are making analogies with civil aviation. Some people are making analogies with the World Health Organization and so on and so forth, nuclear weapons. But I think we need to make a distinction between processes and substance. So the, the processes, the, the mechanisms that will be invented maybe to govern AI are one thing, but the substance, the, reg, the regulatory standards, they already exist, at least at a very general level. And this is where international law comes in. Can you give us an example of that? Because I I mean, these, when people talk about civil aviation or nuclear regulation, these are old examples from you know, decades ago, from after the Second World War, which people might think aren't really applicable to now. So what is it you're saying that could be applied? Yes, and we don't have to look too far, actually, because uh, when it comes to the governance of the Internet, information communications technologies, states have come together 
to agree on at least basic principles on how international law and norms of responsible state behavior regulate, govern the internet. So that's a good example of where progress has been made. You're talking about norms. I'm wondering what the rest of you think, whether norms and what we've got at the moment, the picture that Tolito is making, whether that is adequate for this job. Millie, what do you think? I'm not sure that they are. I mean, for example, the announcement, was it yesterday or the day before from the UN um, coming out of the UN Security Council meeting? I'm a bit hesitant about that being the framing of this technology. There are ways in which it's useful to be um, to consider AI as a security threat, but other ways in which that could be a distraction. Um, for example, I think the biggest risk of AI is maybe around kind of exacerbating inequalities or creating new inequalities. So again, it's kind of some of the norms and the frameworks that we have might have some benefits, but they could also maybe lead to missed opportunities or, you know, uh, the wrong focus. Carl and Alex, what do you think? Have we got the rules there already? What always makes me nervous around norms is, especially now, it's hard to see how they're going to stand up against some very profound drivers and incentives that different groups have, whether they're commercial, national security, to do with self-enrichment or whatever, about bad uses of AI. Like, the norm can exist, but I cannot imagine a military... A military will see it as their job to leverage whatever technology they can to try and gain advantage over an adversary. Like, companies have a douchery duty to try and maximise their profits. Um, Those are unbelievably powerful incentives, which... If we go back to Web 2, I mean, the, the, the rise of social media looms very large here, you know, and we can see that, like, we have struggled for 10 years to try and find ways of trying to implant ethical, basic ethical democratic principles into the way those platforms work. And it hasn't really worked. And it's not because it's bad people, evil people on the platforms. It's simply because commercial incentives have kind of collided with democratic principles. We stand really in danger of that happening again here unless we find another way to kind of weave those kinds of ideas into how this technology is developed and what it's used for. Toluta, how would you come back to that, uh, that norms really aren't going to do the job? Yeah, I'd push back against it. I think that the problem is not with the law, the substance of the law. It's about how people are framing the debate about law constraining or overly constraining the use or the development of the technology. And I think this comes from a place of lack of awareness of what the law really is. And for example, when it comes to human rights, what people don't often understand is that there's room for flexibility. So human rights law makes, uh, gives states enough, for example, enough margin of discretion, enough flexibility to develop new technologies, but also uh, mitigate the risk. So there is flexibility inbuilt in the law. And I think people are missing the mark a little bit. And on the point about uh, platforms, online platform uh, governance, that's a very good example of how the incorporation of, for example, human rights law and platform policies actually led to a good result. Imagine how platforms were before they they started to think about human rights uh, within their policies and how they are now. I mean, of course, it's not perfect, but it's better than it was before. We're in an age, though, when international law and norms aren't having a very good time of it. We've had uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. We've had, uh, for years, China uh, becoming a member of the WTO, for example, but then uh, not following many of the rules there, arguably, I guess I should add. What do you say to the argument that we've got a lot of rules and norms indeed, but they're not of much use if countries or companies simply won't sign up to them and there is no way to enforce that? Yeah, so enforcement is always a problem with international law, but also domestic law. But the main message for me is that it provides a starting point. 
And it is something that we already have. We don't have to reinvent it. And we can use that as a guideline at the very least to develop and regulate and govern this new technology. And I think that we need to focus on on what we have achieved so far, as opposed to just what it hasn't uh, led to. So the positives rather than the negatives. Alex, what do you make of this? A useful starting point? So, so I, I do think it's a, it's it's a it's a better place to start than, than perhaps where we started with the rise of social media, with Facebook and and Twitter. I do remember that sort of coincided with some democratic movements around the world, notably the Arab Spring. And I think people looked to social media perhaps as value positive. This would be the vanguard of democracy. It would push forward these sort of Eurocentric values, perhaps even democratic values out around the world. And and I think for the best part of five or six years, that narrative didn't really go challenged until it finally gave way to the online harms narrative that now really sort of drives a lot of the, the the legislative regulatory governance sort of processes around social media. Now, we've sort of fast forwarded a step, I think, with the current discussion around AI. And we, with the exception of a sort of a few very utopian voices, there is without doubt either a sort of a note of caution to almost all of the talk around AI or, you know, frankly, a sort of full on apocalyptic uh, uh, sort of fear. If we're starting from a principle where we've sort of taken the blinkers off and we're seeing this for what it is, seeing the the incentives for what they are and seeing the capacity of government to control this stuff for what they really are, uh, I think we're, we're starting in a good place. What do you make of the fact that so many of the apocalyptic warnings have come from the leaders of the tech companies, which is one of the novel aspects of this that has really got people talking about it in the past few months? Yeah, I, I find this really tough. Uh, We're inventing this. Yes, watch, watch out. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, I do, you know, look, the cynic in me does say that there is some, uh, you know, we've seen this before with social media. You know, let me introduce you to my worst enemies. They will tell you how powerful and evil we are. And I do sometimes worry that that hype is being replicated here in AI. You know, this is the most important, significant, powerful, potentially world-ending technology, we're the only people capable of controlling it. That said, look, there is there are enough serious people out there who genuinely identify the, the possibility of a superintelligence in the medium or long term as being something that we ought to worry about. And so I'm not willing to sort of throw that out entirely. I do think it's something we ought to be aware of. I do think bracketing it in the same sort of sentence as climate change is a mistake. I think climate change is a much more pressing and urgent threat. And and I also strongly agree with what Millie alluded to earlier, which is that we shouldn't let the long term risks blind us to the sort of short term risks. Carl, you were saying before, look, don't worry about a big super intelligence. That conception of it is is really off the mark. What do you make of these really very striking warnings by the tech titans that we should be afraid of the technology that they are creating? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not Jeffrey Hinton. And when the father of AI quits his job and warns us, you know, I mean, I think that's really was one of the most important origins for the kind of debate that we're into now. It, it is it is strange because that you then talk to AI engineers, you try and get your head around this strange, almost unfathomable thing that, that we're all talking about. And, and again and again, the message that you hear back is this is not sentient. It's not even close to being sentient. It can't even hope to be sentient. It's pattern recognition. It's extremely, extremely powerful pattern recognition. I think for me, the scary thing ultimately about the singularity is it's how unknowable it really is. We don't know how far away it is. We don't know what happens when we reach it. And we don't know what its impacts will be. I mean, ultimately, the potential impacts really are so great. I think that is what has driven 
so many people now to want us to try and slow down the development of the technology until all the squishy human things, the norms and the laws, the public understandings, the ethical codes, you know, all these things that we always use to try and constrain and manage, you know, powerful new capabilities have caught up. And that's where, and I'm sorry to disagree with, with, with my colleague on this podcast, the history of Web 2 is a warning, not a triumph. Like those 10 years were not, that was not us succeeding. That was us abjectly failing in bringing those companies under control and bringing those platforms in line with democratic values. You, you can point to Myanmar, you can point to um, the rise of the far right, you can point to a series of elections. I don't need to go into all of that. The evidence base for that is, is awful and it is massive. But the, the thing that finally got the platforms under control is regulation. It was the EU, the UK and other governments stepping in and actually beginning to regulate the platforms themselves. Alex, what do you think? Uh, well, I don't think Carl and I are disagreeing. I think that... Well, it sounds like you are. <laughs> I think when I say we're going into this with our eyes open, I think that's a result of 10 years of abject failure. I think 20 years of giving stewardship custody of our, our sort of online public space to effectively Californian advertising companies, I think has been a largely failed experiment when it comes to democracy. Um, I don't think Carl and I disagree about that. I guess it's possible for, for one person to have a disagreement. Go on. Yeah, go on, Carl. No, it was actually Talita, I think, that was that was kind of emphasising us to dwell on the positives. It's a warning. The whole the whole of our struggle with Web2 was a warning and it, and it really underlined the importance of us having liberal democratic due authority stepping in and taking control over how these technologies are managed what direction they go in and how they can be used not allowing not allowing the the technology companies themselves to drive that discussion just remind us in a second what web 2 is web 2 is social media it's thank you uh, that's great facebook that's it's, great it's <laughs> that, 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 that's great for this Taluta, do you want to come back on this and then i'm, I'm coming to millie about something uh, else privacy and data yeah i think it was um it wasn't just regulation that sort of like helped things get a little bit better on the online platform uh, environment i think it was a combination of companies themselves realizing that they needed to do something out of, you know, concern for reputational damage. As you mentioned, Myanmar was a huge, huge hit on Facebook's reputation. And so Facebook responded accordingly. It set up the oversight board. So it was a combination of, of uh, uh, company-led initiatives and also state-led initiatives regulation because we do have to bear in mind, for example, as you mentioned, the uh, EU Digital Services Act, it only entered into force this year, and it's not even applicable yet. Uh, it, it is in force, but companies still need to start uh, doing the risk assessments that they're required to do. So it's not, it doesn't have teeth yet. So of course, it was the threat of that regulation being adopted that drove companies to improve their policies. But it was a combination of regulatory efforts, but also private-led uh, policy efforts. Thank you for that. Millie. Sorry, I may I come in on this? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks. So I, I guess we're in danger of underestimating the human element. We're talking about these things, about companies and about the military, as if it's inevitable that they'll act in a certain way and almost as if, you know, they're, they're sentient. Whereas actually, you know, they have leaders and a lot depends on the quality of the leadership. I mean, there were times in the Cold War where the military decided 
not to kind of escalate a threat because they use the back channels and they use soft power to try to de-escalate, you know? So it's there's always a human at the center of this. And that there's a lot to be said about the quality of the leadership, um, the kind of values of the leadership team and, and so on. And I think it's also really important that remember companies have shareholders, you know, and shareholders can exercise their will. I, I don't think we should see some of these movements as inevitable. I think we should always remember there's scope for human agency and there's scope for the expression of individual values in this. Well, thank you very much for bringing us on to that point, because it's a perfect way to talk about um, Rishi Sunak's summit. So, Millie, what would you like to see from that summit? The government's absolutely clear that it wants to have it. It is perhaps a bit less clear at this point, going into August, of what is going to be in that summit and what the summit should attempt to achieve. What would be your wish list? It's a fast moving field, so it depends on what else is happening. For example, with the UN announcement this week, that might change the parameters slightly. Just remind us what the UN announcement was. Oh, that they, um, the UN intends to set up um, a kind of governance or advisory body to ensure that the UN can provide that kind of global governance um, for the development of AI. So I think that with the UK's potential AI safety summit or AI governance summit, I'm not quite sure what the, what the focus is going to be just yet. I think it's really important that the UK leads the way in showing what kind of ethical development of AI is. So not just thinking about commercial interests, but also thinking about the kind of society that we want. Bearing in mind in the UK, at least, we're preparing for a general election. So I think it's always with these technologies, you you start with the society you want to build and then you work out the role of the technology in it. So start with the vision for society and then work out what the AI systems are going to do within or to help you achieve that vision. That might have made the summit even more demanding. I'm not sure they can get to a vision of society by November. Alex, what do you think? It's difficult. And Millie's right. This this does move quickly. I, I think we need to be realistic about what can be achieved here. And I think we need to be realistic about the role of the UK in all this. And we need to be realistic, I think, as to why this summit is taking place in the first place. Frankly, I think if Google DeepMind wasn't based in the UK, we wouldn't be having this this summit in, in the same way. And so there is the, sort of the industry aspect, the business aspect to ensure that the UK does become a find that Goldilocks solution between being a place that is both the place to start an AI business while at the same time creating a market around a sort of a differentiated type of um, a, a, a place where you can have you know a regulated a, a regulation that allows for both business but also a new kind of um, of AI too much. I suppose that's probably the primary ambition. We can get perhaps a little bit more specific about the exact areas that I think need to be ironed out as a result of this this summit. But I think that it's finding that Goldilocks solution is that I think uh, around regulation that is, is is going to be the priority. Okay, well, with several months to go, I will leave it uh, from you for Goldilocks, but I will be asking you what what, what more precise tips we can give uh, Rishi Sunak on this. Carl, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, it's a tightrope. And and the other side of this, so on the one side, obviously, politicians are very much alive to the kind of concerns of constituents around runaway AI and taking over everything and we need to shape it. And a perfect topic, of course, for Chatham House here, you know, AI is increasingly seen as a, as a branch of geopolitical competition. You know, it's almost like a kind of new coal or steel, you know, kind of manufacturing capability in the way that countries around the world see that they need to have it in their borders. They need the data there. They need the foundational models there. They need the engineers. And the, I think there's, there's an assumption that this is going to become increasingly less globalised as a capability like data will will actually start flowing less and less between borders and there'll be less and less international collaboration especially between um a kind of geosphere led by the states and a geosphere led by china 
And I think like the UK is in quite a tenuous place, not necessarily going to be one of the places where AI innovation happens. I think all that is true, indisputably true, and really, really interesting about what you're saying about it. So what should we push for? I don't mean we Chatham House, but what should the world want to come out of this summit? Is it some precise agreements about collaboration? Is it is it laws? What What is it? What I want us in that summit to identify is what I think is currently a kind of subterranean or submerged consensus that I'm sure exists somewhere between rules and structures which allow innovation and which are safe for democracies. What I think is really galling, and I think partly this is the way in which we always construct these debates in the media and in and and in policy circles, is the way we've already created different camps, you know, AI or techno boosters or optimists on one side and kind of pessimists on the other. You know, and it's very, very hard to burrow underneath that to actually see what I'm sure exists in almost every debate, which is that there's a ton of stuff that most people have in common with each other. You know, but right now we've got some people that think it's nuclear technology and needs to be brought under entirely government control and to sort it out. And we've got venture capitalists and innovators that are screaming about all the positive applications and don't talk very much about all the dark and insidious and dangerous uses, which of course also exist, and very little in between. So for me, that summit must be a consensus finding expedition. It's not even about balancing, it's about interests. It's about finding common interests underneath. That's what I would try and use it to do. Talita. I absolutely agree. I think the summit should be an opportunity to reach consensus, to find the minimum common denominator that is acceptable to everyone, at least when it comes to the substance of, of the laws that apply or should apply to the phenomenon. And then we can think about governance models. But first, let's reach an agreement on what the law should say or already says about that. And I think that the UK should also position itself as a mediator for different voices, right? So uh, the foreign secretary stressed the the role of different stakeholders in his uh, statement at the Security Council on Tuesday. And I think this is really important to bring different people, diverse uh, actors around the table, and also to make sure that the Global South is also involved in this conversation. Okay, well, we'll have to... I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here... Wondering how much consensus we've seen at recent summits, I will take uh, the optimism you've all offered. Let me just finally ask you all to crack a problem to bring it down to the squishy human level, as as Carl said. Uh, This is a problem, what is it rather pompously called, the director's office at Chatham House. And we'd very much like to take various diaries of senior people, including me, and and turn them instantly, or pretty well instantly, into the back of the board papers where it says what everyone's done how many media interviews and everything. And then other people say, but wait a minute, you don't really want all that. Do you want to hand over your diary to Google or Meta or whatever? Do we need to reach for something that isn't their version of AI and um, some some open source lot? And others come in and say, well, look, your diary's on the cloud anyway, albeit behind the Chatham House ferocious firewall. And one way or another, it all, in terms of using this uh, practical technology that everyone's playing with in the evenings, we get stuck. Alex, this is obviously a bigger question about data and privacy, but how one as an individual or a smallish organization can begin to use it safely, protecting oneself. What would you advise the director's office upstairs? I would advise the director's office to look at all of the examples around the world of people using the incredible capacity that some AI technologies uh have already unleashed to see how they might improve our processes. I mean, I'm sure that we are all familiar with everything from Google Maps to autocomplete to all of these amazing ways that AI or what's sometimes called machine learning have have improved our lives. And that will only continue. The question I think uh, you have around 
know, is this all Microsoft and Google? Well, that's a different question. And I hope that one of the the, the I think one of the key discussion points for the next sort of 12 months, two years, is how we ensure that it is not just Google, it is not just Microsoft who are capable of um, of, of, of creating these tools and licensing, but actually that everyone from academics to health researchers to maybe even communities are able to take what is effectively maths, complicated, difficult maths that requires a lot of sometimes less hardware to, to run and put that to good use in the service of the director's office and also maybe democracy. Gosh, two two in one breath. I don't normally get that. You are running some risk, I have to say, of the director's office remembering that there was a brilliant Digital Society initiative in Chatham House and a, a memo coming back down uh, on that. Uh, anyone else got any thoughts on this, on how people can use it practically themselves and safely? And Martha Lane Fox on our panel recently with Tony Blair and the president of Microsoft was saying, urging everyone, particularly those in government, to just go play with it. Talita. Yeah, I agree. Yesterday I was using ChatGPT myself and I also noticed that several uh, diplomats, again, at the meeting at the Security Council started their their statements with sentences or paragraphs from ChatGPT. I think the starting point is to know what we're dealing with, right? And I think that this is eye-opening. This can be uh, reassuring in many ways but also humbling because we don't know uh, exactly what the risks are, but you know, at least being exposed to what these technologies are can give us some insight into what they currently are and how other individuals are using. Cool. Bronwyn, if you have uh, sensitive meetings, keep them in a paper diary. Uh, the best hackers I know, you know, they are not storing any of their sensitive information in digital form. Uh, and I wouldn't either um, have a stack of post-it notes, but we need to be clearer about data which is private and needs to be protected and data that isn't. And I assume for the director's office that, that your calendar that's being printed on the back of some kind of handout probably doesn't contain any of the sensitive meetings anyway. And I think there you would gain great value by uh, turning it into more shareable form. You're absolutely right. We don't we don't put the sensitive meetings in. It's it's the number of times I do podcasts and this kind of thing. <laughs> Millie, have you have you got have you got any just in case uh, the, the world of hackers is short of inspiration for what they want to attack this morning? Millie, uh, any any thoughts on this on how people can use it individually? So people organisations, I think it's maybe more important to focus on developing skills than on investing in in the hardware alone. I mean, you could get the best hardware in the world, but if you're not adaptable and if you know you don't kind of um, if you're comfortable using it, it's not going to be very useful. On the other hand, if you've got a team or if you yourself are sort of quite adaptable, quite inquisitive and so on, you'll be able to get great stuff done with very simple hardware. And I think that because of the speed at which this, this particular technology is changing, you're going to have to need to keep on being adaptable. So you're going to need to have people who are comfortable trying new things, but also making decisions not to chase the latest thing every time because they can make a judgment call about whether it's relevant to them. So just really focusing on developing your people, developing your skills and de developing your confidence about your goals. Absolutely. And I, I think you capture it very, very well. I was part of a discussion group looking at British foreign policy and someone put the uh, questions of what are the main things to worry about into GPT-4, and it came back with an identical list to, to those in British foreign policy, except at number seven was the threat of extraterrestrial contact, <laughs> which we should all turn around to. Anyway, uh, beyond the, uh, the, the the amusement, I'm sure there's, there's lots to be gained from it. We're going to have to stop there. There's lots and lots more to talk about this. And as the summit gets closer, we will, I think, be looking at more detail at what consensus might mean and what might 
practically come out of it. But we're going to have to stop there. So a huge thank you to all my guests, Talita Diaz, Alex Krasadomsky, Millie Zimeter, and Carl Miller. To follow them all on Twitter, the links are in the show notes, as is a questionnaire on AI, courtesy of our Digital Society Initiative. What's the first question, Alex? Why are we building AI? There you go. Uh, it's not multiple choice. <laughs> and a reminder, you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask and we really do value it. And to read more from all our experts or to find out more about our events, I'm going to have a very, very busy uh, start in uh, September and through the autumn or to become a member, and we would love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of all our programmes and all our speakers. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. <laughs>